Our Father, we come to the one who is creator of heaven and earth, who is Lord of our lives, whether we acknowledge that or not. And Father, it is our desire bow the knee before Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our King, to acknowledge him every day of our lives so that one day we will stand in his presence and we'll be hearing the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is our desire. Yet, Lord, you know we struggle day by day, not only with temptations, but with the curse of the flesh and the weaknesses of the flesh. But we're so thankful for the Spirit of God that you give to us, not only as the, as the down payment for the promise of eternal life, but as the one to energize us, to strengthen us, and to lead us. Father, I pray that we will follow the shepherd and that we will hear his voice and that we will trust in you. Father, I pray that you will be with Gwen and Kirsten as they go this morning, that you will be uh, granting strength and peace, that the shalom of God, that the peace that Jesus gives, not like the peace of the world, will be with them. And Father, we pray that you will touch Rob this morning, that you will bring his blood pressure and pulse rate down and, and, and clear his lungs, and pray, Father, that the doctors will make wise decisions and that he will be given a touch from the Lord of the universe, even this very morning. And Lord, that you will guide and bless and, and bring about your perfect will in this situation, because we know that whatever you want, this is what we want, because your desire is for the best in each of our lives. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And Father, we just pray now that you will teach us through your word, that you will open the uh, truth to us and help us to incorporate it into our lives, not as an academic study, but as a spiritual devotional understanding of who you are and what you're saying to us even this, this hour in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. If you will turn to the 19th chapter of the book of Numbers, I would like to read the first 10 verses. Chapter 19 of Numbers, beginning with verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp, and be slaughtered in his presence. Next Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, and sprinkle some of its blood towards the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide and its flesh and its blood with its refuge refuse shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. And the priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterwards come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until the evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. 
Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is for purification from sin. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. This particular passage describes one of the most unique <coughs> rituals practiced by ancient Israel. And as we go through this uh, passage and, and look at it in detail, we'll understand how it is unique or was unique. In, in so many of its details, it differs from the other sacrifices that God had ordained and which are discussed in the first portion of the book of Leviticus. As strange as it may seem, this sacrifice is another illustration, and, and I, you know, I, I can't, I don't know if I can underscore this enough, but, but these strange, to us strange rituals and sacrifices of the Old Testament were all illustrations. They were illustrations of an eternal truth that, of course, would come true in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. But as strange as this particular, as we read through this thing, uh, ritual may seem to us, it was an illustration to Israel of the eternal importance, eternal importance, of how life is lived on this earth now, for whoever the now refers to. At this point, of course, to Israel uh, 3,500 years ago, but the truth is applicable to us here today. One of the greatest lies circulating today is summed up in the term purgatory. Now I'm not just talking about the Catholic doctrine specifically, that's part of it, but it's gone beyond that. And I alluded to this at the end of class last week. This is the whole idea that there is an opportunity in some intermediate state or, un, or intermediate place for one to get it right after death. In other words, if you don't get it right in this life and you die, there's still yet another opportunity. Now, when our pastor and others here uh, preach about the second chance that God gives, he, they, they're not talking about purgatory. They're talking about in life, God gives us many opportunities to hear the truth and to respond. Uh, a person may at one point close the door on, on the Spirit speaking to them, and yet God may give them yet another opportunity to hear and, and to respond. But once we die, all opportunities have passed. This is a subtle heresy. Because, and, and when, I, when I teach uh, about the Reformation in my world history class at the college, I spend quite a bit of time with the Reformation because even though the textbook usually gives a relatively minor amount of time to the Reformation, I spend more time with it because to me it's a very, very pivotal and crucial time in the history at least of the Western world. And I really spend some time talking about purgatory and the whole idea. As you probably know, there is no scripture to support purgatory. There is a small verse in 2 Maccabees that can be interpreted as alluding to a purgatory. But as you may know, uh, 2 Maccabees is not in our scripture. It is in the Catholic scripture. 
but it is not in the Protestant, nor is it considered by the Jewish people to be part of their scripture either. It's considered to be an apocryphal book by both Protestants and Jews, but only the Catholics have uh, incorporated it into, into um, their text of scripture. It's a subtle heresy because it reduces the importance of faith and obedience in this life. In other words, if you believe that, hey, once you die, God's going to give you an, a second opportunity, what's the great urgency about having faith here and now? What's the great urgency about being uh, obedient here and now? Well, it's, it's really taken away, isn't it? It's only for those who were born with a natural inclination to be you know, good people that it would be important in this life. Because if we don't get it right now, we can get it right next time. It allows us to excuse sin and disobedience. And you'll hear this all the time. It is the natural condition of mankind to fail. It is the natural inclination of mankind to yield to the lusts of the flesh and to do what feels good right now. That's the natural inclination. And of course, God up there, looking down, understands that. And so God says, well, I understand. You know, he can't really help it. She can't really help it. But God doesn't expect us to go around with this halo around our heads all, or all of our lives. And, you know, it's only those people who are going to get immediately to heaven. Everybody else goes into this kind of an intermediate catch-all. This is a damnable lie because it innervates people and causes them to not feel it's important to get it right now. And the big problem of it is, this is not specifically a Roman Catholic doctrine. It has crept into the Protestant church. It is in some of the mainline Protestant churches. And if I name some of the names of the mainline churches, you would know them. That where, where this is actually creeping in. Subtly, subtly. It is so reasonable, isn't it? If you were God, wouldn't you create a situation like that? You would look down and you'd look at people and you'd say, well, you know, it's so hard for people to be obedient to God. So I'm going to make it a little easier and I'm going to make a, 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 put an intervening step here between life and death and, you know, and eternity and, and allow a place for you to be purged of whatever carryover that goes over into death. Well, some mainline Protestant churches will teach you now that as long as you believe that there is a God and that you pretty regularly go to a church, preferably their church, of course, and you don't become a Jack the Ripper or an Adolf Hitler, whom everybody would agree will go to hell and will have no second chance. But as long as you're not that bad, you will have a second chance. And I've alluded to this before. Lois heard this from the mouth of a main Protestant preacher in Reading on TV. Repentance, blood atonement, Humility before God, obedience to God, and literal belief in the Bible are by these people considered to be unsophisticated distortions of the anti-intellectual radical fundamentalists. I confess. <laughs> I'm a radical fundamentalist, I guess, in that, in that uh, particular definition, but I do not confess to being unsophisticated or anti-intellectual. I think that what they're doing is shutting down 
the intellectual process, shutting down the spiritual process, and going with their feelings, which of course is so big today. How do you feel about it? I, I don't know if you have read or get the U.S. News, but in the re most recent, I think it's the most recent issue of U.S. News, there's an article in there talking about how students at universities now do not deny the Holocaust. They simply say that, well, it may not have been a bad thing because we can't judge what's right for other people. You know? And you can see how Satan is moving in so subtly, taking away basically absolutes and making everything relative. You know, we kind of, I, I don't know if you remember when situation <coughs> ethics was first coming in, but we kind of looked at that as a bad thing, but it didn't seem like a threat. But this has become so pervasive in our society now. From the time children are, are in grammar school, they're being taught, basically, what's right for you may not be right for her or for him. Everything is individually based. And you can't judge another person because you don't know what's right for him or what's right for her. Well, you can understand that that creates a situation where you've kind of got a slippery slime ball here where nothing will stick. You know, and the objective absolutes of God won't stick because they're, they're covered with this slime of, of non-judgmental, you know, what's right for me may not be right for him. That's all part and parcel of, of, of these teachings which have been absorbed into the church today. And, and we who still preach that the literal word of God and absolute truth and obedience to God and the efficacy and absolute necessity of blood atonement become the minority. And we're easily branded as anti-intellectual and unsophisticated because, you see, the great THDs uh, of the world today from Germany and elsewhere are those who look at the Bible as maybe having in it somewhere the Word of God, but certainly not being the inerrant inspired Word of God in its totality. But, but you and I, I think, have to accept it that way, because if we don't accept it that way, what foundation do we have? We have none. We have no foundation. And, and that's where the world is at. And that's unfortunately where so much of the church is at today. No foundation. No foundation. And it is absolutely tragic. You might say, how does all this relate to a red heifer? <laughs> <laughs> well, it relates to a red heifer because God gave to Israel all kinds of specific, you know, even to us as, as modern-day fundamentalists, we look back and we say, whoa, there are an awful lot of rituals here that Israel had to keep. But, but God was very specific and as we study this, we discover it was no gushy thing with God. You know, it's not like, well, you know, if you do it this way, it's okay. Just so long as you got the general idea. God's not into general ideas. God's into specific truth. And God's into specific obedience. Not just kind of generic obedience. Well, I obey God because, you know, I go to church once every, maybe even once a week, you know, or once a month or whatever. No, God's into specific daily, hourly, minutely obedience to him. And it's not easy. And you can imagine it wasn't terribly easy for Israel either. But of course, one thing we do have to remember about ancient Israel, they weren't as busy as we are. <laughs> I'm not saying all of our busyness is good. But you know, they raised sheep and, and they raised grain and they had a lot of time to, to focus on these things. 
And we've busied ourselves today to the point where sometimes we don't even hear God and the Spirit of God can't plow through, or I shouldn't say can't, but you know, we don't allow him to plow through all this stuff uh, and, and to listen to his voice. Um, and this is the way God made it, 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 it so daily for Israel. There was a daily sacrifice in the morning and in the evening for Israel. And there were all these other sacrifices and rituals to be observed. And the purpose of them all was to illustrate and to remind. And, and that's what we see here when we see this um, ritual of the red heifer. God was not going to tolerate this kind of thinking that I've been kind of uh, barbing here this morning. This kind of jelly-minded thinking that, that God understands our weaknesses and it's okay with him. And, and he's, you know, the old grandfather in the rocking chair up there looking down and saying, well, I understand you poor guys. You just can't handle it all and I'll give you a second chance at it. I mean, you know, that is soft-minded thinking. And God didn't tolerate that amongst ancient Israel. And so he gave them these many, many visual aids you know, when you, when you teach Sunday school to children, you have to have visual aids. And it used to be mostly flannel graph. But of course, I mean, flannel graph is still what? used. What's that? What? <laughs> what, what, what is flannel graph? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, it's almost gotten to be that point. <clears throat> now you've got to have action videos <laughs> to, uh, to illustrate these truths. One of these visual aids, one of these visual aids to understanding the, internal, the eternal importance of repentance, of obedience, and of faith here and now was this law of the red heifer. Physical death was the product of the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Until Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden, physical, physical death did not exist. That is one of the reasons why evolution is impossible. Because evolution requires, as you've probably seen some of these t-shirts, billions of deaths and trillions of deaths to have taken place. And yet without physical death, how can that happen? How could it have happened? It couldn't have happened. I've mentioned this before, but if you want to look, I mean, it's, it's a human understanding, but it's based on biblical understanding. Read Perlandra by C.S. Lewis. You know, it's, it's science fiction, but, but it just contains so much Im, important understanding of creation and the beginning of, de of death and all these kinds of things. Uh, Perlandra by uh, C.S. Lewis. It, it just gives you a sense of how this could have happened and the significance of it to us and, of course, from Scripture. Because physical death was the product of the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It, that is death, represented sin and uncleanness. Now, for you or for me to die is not an unclean act. But death amongst Israel represented sin and uncleanness. Hence this ritual involving the red heifer. The law of the red heifer was provided as a means by which those ritually contaminated by contact with the dead body could restore their ceremonial cleanness. This doesn't really, uh, I'll, I'll make references to this, this is really not pathogenic. 
There may be a couple of places in this passage where, um, going through this whole chapter anyway, where there's a pathogenic reason here. But for the most part, it is ritual cleanliness that's being uh, focused on here. This law, this ritual, not only reminded the people of their mortality, but of the supreme importance of maintaining a right relationship with God. What is the purpose of all these rituals? To underscore the supreme importance of maintaining a right relationship with God. Here, now. Mortality. It's funny, uh, our society is so psychotic, it seems like, you know, about death. You don't want children to be exposed to the death of aunt so-and-so, but they can watch people being torn apart on television in gory detail. You know, it's just, it makes no sense. Children, however, in ancient Israel were exposed to death from the time they were very small. They knew when people died. They weren't shielded from it. And they, too, had to go through this ritual. And I'm sure they would say, Daddy, why am I going through this? Why are they sprinkling this dirty water on me? <laughs> because you have been made ritually unclean by the fact that you were in the tent when Aunt Sally died. You know, whatever, Aunt Sarah. Now, the institution of this ritual at this point is not accidental. There's nothing that God does accidentally. In fact, what we're going to find out as we, as we move on here is, boy, there's a giant leap between chapter 19 and chapter 20. We don't even really know when chapter 19 occurs during this uh, period of the Exodus. Somewhere in there, probably fairly early on. But as we get to chapter 20, we're at the end of the Exodus almost. So <laughs> we make this giant leap here. Which tells us something, which tells us that God wasn't particularly interested in, in, in restoring all the detail of 37 years of wandering around because it was probably pretty much the same day after day. But, but the importance of instituting this now was there was going to be an unprecedented numbers of deaths in Israel over the next 38 years or however many years after this was instituted. Because, you remember, when Israel rebelled at Kadesh Barnea and would not go into the land, God said, all right, the whole generation from 20 years old and upward are going to die in this wilderness. So all these people are going to die in the next 38 years who probably wouldn't have died necessarily. Uh, that is, all of them wouldn't have in that 30-year period. So more are going to be dying than usual. A one and a quarter million of them would be dying in the next 38 years, which works out to 33,000 a year or 90 per day. If you have 90 people dying in your camp per day, you know, it's pretty hard to get away from the fact death is prevalent. Death is a pervasive thing. It's going to hang over the camp like an ominous cloud. In, however, it's not an ominous cloud if you're walking hand in hand with God. As we see in the second and third verses of this passage, God gave this statute to Israel through Moses and Aaron. But it is not Aaron it was not Aaron who was going to go out and institute the first sacrifice of the red heifer. It would be Eliezer, Aaron's oldest surviving son, the one who was intended to inherit the high priesthood. He will be the one who will be going out and carrying out the first sacrifice of the red heifer. He would be the prime player. Why? Because God is confirming before all Israel with this act that Eliezer is God's chosen successor to Aaron and there was going to be no question about it because when we get to the 20th chapter of Numbers, Aaron dies. So 
the question of successor is very important. Now you remember Korah and his 250 had challenged Aaron and the whole priesthood, saying, we are as, as worthy as you are to be priests. And God said, want to bet? And God cooked the whole crew, which, which of course confirmed uh, Aaron's high priesthood before all Israel. And now this, in turn, underscores it. Eliezer is the successor. There is to be no question about it. And you can't help liking Eliezer if you follow him in Scripture. Eliezer was a man like Joshua, like Moses, a man who was committed to doing what was right in the eyes of God. And you just like this man, Eliezer. We'll see that as we go further on in the life of Moses and into the life of Joshua. In verse 9, we discover that there is a physical product of this ritual. The physical product is, are the ashes of the red heifer, which will then be mixed with water to create what is called the water to remove impurity. The water to remove impurity. Now, what we're going to find as we look at this is a strange phenomenon here, where you have a water to remove impurity, which, if you contact it, makes you unclean. But if you're the person who's the recipient of it because you are already unclean, it makes you clean. <laughs> Huh? One of the things that we discover about all of this is the unfathomable God we serve. You and I will not be perfect in this life. You, you've probably discovered that as you've been moving along through the years. And although we will be perfected by the blood of Christ, we are perfect in the eyes of God because he looks at us through the, the blood of Jesus Christ. But even in heaven, we're not going to be perfect as God is perfect because that would make us co-equal with God. We will be sinless. We will be perfect in his eyes. But we will be still people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and perfected through that blood. But we will not ever be on par with God. He will always be God. And have you ever wondered what you're going to do through eternity? You're going to spend the whole time learning the things that God is trying to teach. And eternity won't even be long enough because God is so far above us that it would take, well, all eternity even to begin to fathom who he is and what he has done. And my personal feeling is that he is going to create such a wonderland that it's going to make anything mankind could even conceive of pale into insignificance in comparison. This whole idea of sitting on a cloud and harping is again a satanic subtle lie you know about what heaven is about and about getting the pearly gates and and having to talk peter into letting you in you know all this kind of stuff that appears in cartoons you know it's a subtle lie maybe funny but for the majority of the human race it's not funny god has something far more wonderful than that delich in his commentary, German commentator from the 19th century says this, As water is the ordinary means by which all kinds of uncleanness are removed, it was also to be employed in the removal of the uncleanness of death. But as this uncleanness was the strongest of all religious defilements, fresh water alone was not sufficient to remove it. And consequently, a certain kind of sprinkling water was appointed, which was strengthened by the ashes of a sin offering, 
and thus formed into a holy alkali. The main point in the law which follows, therefore, was the preparation of the ashes. These had to be obtained by the sacrifice of a red heifer. Now, we have to understand that when Delich wrote in the 19th century, he wrote with it inside a different context than we would today, and we almost think in reading that that he's talking about, you know, holy water and, and holy alkali, and that there's something about the physical aspects that actually are necessary to, to uh, transform us spiritually. But we have to understand that the truth behind it all is it's the faith and obedience of the heart which makes these things a reality. I mean, if you were sprinkled with this water because you had been unclean, but you were doing it simply because your uncle made you do it and you didn't believe a word of it, then it didn't do you any good. Just like the daily sacrifice for the sins of Israel didn't make people holy if they didn't believe. They had to believe and trust and have faith. Israel had to believe as you and I must believe. They had to believe that God loved them and that God was, was actually cleansing them of them, right? They had to have repentance in their hearts. This, the scripture tells us that uh, God would much rather have a heart of faith and obedience and repentance than all the sacrifices in the world. Now, the first nine chapters of the book of Leviticus describe the normal sacrifices for sin. And you go through there and you read about the sin offering, and, and you read about the heave offering, and you read, read about the wave offerings, and the grain offering, and all these other offerings which were made. And they were important, and, and, and they were part of God's program to prepare Israel to understand their need and the fact that one day they needed a Messiah. But the sacrifice of the red heifer differs from the other sin offerings in almost every detail. And I've listed that there for you on your outline. First of all, the color. The color. This is the only offering where the color is even mentioned. You go back and read through Leviticus, it doesn't say you must bring a white lamb or a brown goat. It doesn't even mention color. Color is irrelevant. But here it's not. It must be a red heifer. Now, I don't mean, it, it certainly didn't mean red like these chairs. But, but red in the sense that the brown had a strong red color in it, you know. And, and you know, we, we can only assume or, or try to conceive of why this was so. First of all, of course, it would be a very rare color. And being a rare color, the person who had it might not want to have it burned. <laughs> oh, it's such an adorable animal. And, and I want it to, to procreate more animals like it. But it's probably true that a red heifer was chosen because the red would be most close to the color of blood of the sacrifice necessary for sin. You know, this, this is where, as you probably are aware of, many of our mainline Protestant churches have really deviated from truth. They hate the idea of the blood. They won't sing the song, when I see the blood, you know, and there's power in the blood. They, they de-blood everything because they think blood is somehow unsophisticated, non-modern. That, I wonder if they've ever cut themselves, you know. It's pretty modern. We all pretty much need it. But the idea, the idea is that, that blood has to be shed that I might be made righteous in the eyes of God. They reject that because it's not modern. It's not cool. 
Today we go before God in our own strength. And we say, God, I'm here and I know you want me because I have done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've become that, and I'm the chairman of the moose and whatever else, you know. <clears throat> Therefore, uh, I'm worthy. And that is such a lie. Because there is not a person on this planet, no matter what they have done, who's worthy in the eyes of God, short of being covered with the blood of Christ. If they've not been covered with the blood of Christ, they're not going to make it into heaven, if, even if they've been Mr. or Mrs. Goody Two-Shoes all their lives. And, and what tells us something of the nature of God is that the most horrible criminal who in his dying hours turns to Jesus Christ is just as clean as Goody Two-Shoes who get saves, saved too. And we, you know, it's kind of like the parable of the going into the uh, vineyard and working all day long and getting the same reward as the person who comes in the last half hour and works. <laughs> you ever think much about that parable? It isn't just from the human perspective that somebody should work from dawn to dusk and get 10 bucks for their labor and some guy comes trotting in, waltzing in the last half hour and works half an hour and gets 10 bucks too. <laughs> if I were in that situation, I'd have been just as, un you know, well, it's not fair. But for God... Salvation is eternal. And, and whether you've been saved for 60 years or six months is not critical. I mean, it's actually our blessing to be saved for 60 years. To have walked for God with God for 60 years. To have been protected from the vileness that these other people go through before they get saved. Now, everybody's story is different. I'm kind of like the fellow who sang last Sunday night, if you were here, he was saying he was saved at the ripe old age of seven and and he talked about how he's saved from all these horrible sins, you know. He was tongue-in-cheek, of course. You know, I, I was saved at 14, twice as old as he was. But I, I can't remember being a particularly bad kid, you know, before I was saved. So I can't talk about having been in drugs, you know, and having murdered people in the streets with my 9mm, <clears throat> as some could do. But it's a blessing to have walked with God all these years. <laughs> in spite of my failures, God has been faithful. And I was thinking about that even this morning as I was studying this lesson, that how blessed we are compared to 99.9% .9 of the population of this world today, most of whom live without Christ, the bulk of whom don't even have breakfast in the morning, large percentage of whom have no home to go to at night. I mean, we're just blessed, blessed inestimably. Well, another unusual factor about this particular sacrifice was the sex. All the other sin sacrifices were designated to be male animals, males. This is a female. This sacrifice was to be a red heifer, female bovine. Now, we can't really know for sure why, but it's probable that the choice was made because the female is the life bearer. It is through the female that new life comes, and life is the antidote of death. You and I will all face the first death. That's inevitable, unless, of course, Jesus Christ comes before we die, and Lord, may it be, even this morning, even though all of us have this little thing holding us back. Yes, Lord, come, but, but please bring Aunt Sally and Brother George and, and my daughter and my grandchild into the kingdom first. <laughs> you know, and and that's, a worthy, that's a worthy thought and a worthy prayer. But the second death, has been eliminated for us through Jesus Christ. And that's the death that really matters. 
because we don't have to experience the second death if we are in Jesus Christ. But if we're outside of Jesus Christ, the second death is that horrible maw that awaits. I think I referred to this last week, but um, Erwin Lutzer has a series of tapes out. Well, he, may, he preached these messages at his church, but we have them as a set of tapes. <clears throat> Eight tapes dealing with Satan and hell and, and the uh, significance of all of this. And, you know, he points out in there that there are those who like to think that when the unrighteous die, they simply are obliterated. Poof, they're gone. But he says the scripture is just awfully plain about that. The scripture says they live on eternally. It does not say they are snuffed out and they're gone. It says they live on with Satan and his angels in the lake of fire eternally. I mean, there's in no way you get away from the wording. You just have to throw those passages out if we want to believe. I, you know, I was teaching my class down in the Barry in a, in a different church. It was also called Neighborhood Church. And a person came to a class, my class one day, and he just visited once. And after class he said, you don't really believe in an eternal hell, do you? I mean, it's just as if I was some kind of a freak, you know, or an alien if I, if I thought that. And I said, yes. You know, and he was out of there. <laughs> I don't like to believe in that. You know, it's not logical from my you know, distorted understanding. But it's what Scripture says. And we have to believe that. Life is the antidote of death. Eternal life is the antidote of eternal death, of eternal damnation. And the red heifer represents that. Condition. Now, like the other sin offerings mentioned in Leviticus, the red heifer was to be without defect. That means it wasn't to have one short leg, you know, or one eye half shut, or some big old scar on its body. I mean, no animal was perfect in the sense that there was nothing in it that could be considered abnormal for a, bull, uh, for a heifer. But it was to be basically perfect. I mean, you know, somebody, I mean, something, some creature uh, that doesn't have some obvious uh, defect in it. Now, the purpose of this, of course, in all of these offerings was to symbolize the fact that one day Messiah would come who would be without defect. Jesus Christ would come as the perfect sinless Lamb of God. He would die in his perfection because it took that for him to pull all of the sins of the world upon himself. I can't die for your sins because I got my own sins to deal with if I'm outside of Jesus Christ. So th this represents that. But unlike the Leviticus offerings, the red heifer, we're told, was to be an unbroken, unyoked animal. Now, it doesn't necessarily say in the others could never have been used for work at any point in time, even though they're usually taken young enough that that wasn't likely to happen. But it specifically says here, which it doesn't specifically say of the other offerings, it was never to have been used for any kind of work. Her vitality was not to have been exhausted or reduced by any form of labor. She was to be taken in her vital nature, full of life and strength. Matthew Henry, 18th century commentator, felt that this symbolized the fact that Messiah would come 
as a voluntary sacrifice, that he was not compelled or yoked in any way to come and be our sacrifice. God didn't twist the arm of his son and say, you've got to go down here and do this. Jesus gave himself willingly, unyoked, unburdened, unrestrained to be our sacrifice. Fourthly, was the unusual nature of the place of the sacrifice. Normal sacrifices were to be presented before the tabernacle at the bronze altar. Within a few feet of the front of the tabernacle, the offering was to be made. But you'll notice the red heifer was to be sacrificed outside of the camp. Not only not within the framework of the uh, tabernacle grounds, but completely outside of the whole camp. This seems to represent the idea that uncleanness is removed completely. How far has your sin been removed from you if you're in Jesus Christ? As far as the east is from the west. It's buried, as it were, in the depths of the sea. It's been completely removed. Now, that doesn't mean you don't ever remember your failure. You know, every once in a while, they come roaring back. You think, oh, no, that was stupid. But the sin is gone. I still beat myself around with it. And Satan can take it as a tool and clunk, 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 you know. But, but it actually has been removed. And, and so the red heifer is sacrificed outside the camp. The sin is removed from the camp. Then lastly, the ritual. This ritual differs very significantly. In the normal sin offering, you go back and read Leviticus. In the normal sin offering, the priest puts his hand on the head of the animal as it is slain. He identifies with the dying animal. The priest does not do this with a red heifer. The priest is present, but he does not touch the red heifer before it's dead. There is no identification going on between the priest and the red heifer as it is sacrificed. In other sacrifices, you go back and read Leviticus, you discover that the blood is poured out on the altar. You discover that the animal was skinned, cut up, certain parts were washed, only certain parts were burned. But none of that happens with a red heifer. It is not skinned, it is not washed, and the entire animal, hooves, refuse, the whole thing is burned on the altar in, in its entirety. It is burned on the altar. The only thing that the priest does is dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle it seven times towards the tabernacle. Again, there's no scriptural explanation of that, except, of course, we, we understand that it is the acknowledgement that this sacrifice is being made to the divine one who indwells the tabernacle. In the sixth verse, we discover that as the animal is burning, the priest was to throw cedar, hyssop, and scarlet material, probably wool, into the midst of the burning sacrifice. These things have no magical quality. No magical quality at all. These materials are simply associated in the Hebrew mind with cleansing because they have been used in various other rituals for cleansing. So it just kind of, it, it just um, accentuates the idea that this is a cleansing ash that is being made here. Their heifer is being augmented with cedar, hyssop, and scarlet wool, which are symbolic of cleansing, making it, if you will, super cleansing uh, in, in the mind of the people. Now, let me just read that passage there in Leviticus 
that shows the use of those three items in a cleansing process. Leviticus chapter 14. This is the law of the cleansing of a leper. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is verse 1 of chapter 14 of Leviticus. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go outside the camp to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall give orders to slay the one bird in an earthen vessel over running water. For the live bird he shall take it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet string, and the hyssop, and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. And he shall sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and, let, and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. Now there is nothing magical about a live bird and a dead bird. There's nothing magical about the hyssop, the cedar, or the scarlet wool. It is all an act of obedience to God's word. This is what God said to do. Let's see you do it. And as you do it, you know you're walking in obedience to him. God could have chosen eucalyptus. Well, probably not, since it didn't grow in that area. But he could have chosen tamarix, you know, for, for the wood. He could have chosen some other bush besides hyssop. He could have chosen some other colored scarf or material besides scarf. He could have done, I mean, it's not in the color. It's not in the wood. It's in the obedience and the faith that goes with the sacrifice. So as these things were uh, piled on the burning red heifer, this augmented the concept that those ashes will be ashes for purification. Believing that to be true, it became true for Israel. And as you and I believe the word of God, that Jesus Christ came to die and his blood was shed for us, that he gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit to walk day by day with us, to lead us moment by moment. He never departs from us. No matter what the crisis we may going, be going through, his hand and our hand are put together. How do we know this? By faith. It's in the Word of God. And as we believe it, it's real. It's not because we imagine it. It's because we're trusting in the Word of the living God and it becomes a reality in our lives. It's nothing magical. It's reality. It's the reality. This is not the reality. You know, this stuff's all going to be gone. But you and I and God are eternal. And the joy of knowing Him and walking in obedience with Him is highlighted by eternal life. Well, next week I want to continue with this same passage and look at some of the details of what uh, happened here and, and Josephus' explanation of how this, how this really worked.